Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Would you agree that life is too short not to get the most out of every single day? So how do we get more out of our day without burning ourselves out? Curiosity and a drive to improve his own career and personal life led Chris Belfi to take a less traveled road. After building a career in finance working for a large multinational corporation, Chris found that he had a unique skill for helping others stay on top of their work. The foundation that Chris developed to build processes and systems for work, life, and families was based upon David Allen's book, Getting Things Done, a foundation built upon clarity organization, reflectiveness, and engagement. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Belfi. Chris, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. And I think where I normally start with most people is your background. And to me, I've been excited to have this conversation with you because as we were talking before we hit the record button, I think you and I have a lot in common that you may you may not realize is because of our our corporate journeys and careers in the world of, of finance. So let me turn it over to you and have you talk about uh, your background, what you do and, and, and where you were and where, what you do now. Yeah, Paul, thanks so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Uh, so my background is, yeah, it's a little interesting because I actually studied um, applied mathematics and statistics and economics. And then somehow that got me into a, into a career in corporate finance. That's a, that's a convoluted story in and of itself. I was going to say, there's, a, there's another story behind that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have time to go there today. But uh, yeah, so um, I, I had a corporate career with a you know, big company, uh, mostly corporate finance, not 100%, but mostly corporate finance, doing a lot of planning, you know, long-term strategic stuff, as well as you know, more short-term reporting uh, valuing assets, valuing projects, trying to um, figure out if investing capital here or there was a was a good idea or a bad idea, so to speak. And uh, yeah, that kept me very busy for for about sixteen years, actually. And did you did you were you mostly in one location with with your corporate career, or did you move like across country or states or continents? Yeah, in my in my corporate career, I was mostly based in Houston. Uh, I was in the oil industry, and so the Houston was a was a was a place that I lived for about twenty years, I think, in total, including including going to university. And then I did have a short stint where I got to move to London for a couple of years and work as an expatriate, which is an exciting experience. Um, it can be a little tricky at times, but it's uh, definitely something I recommend uh, to people who have interest in, in living in a different culture, even though it's, 
And it's definitely a different culture in London, even though we think of it as, as somewhat similar just because of the language, but it's, it's very different in, in many, many ways. So that was a, a very fun part of my career. It was, that was like almost 20 years ago now. So that's... <laughs> So now when you, when you did that expat assignment, because I actually have a few family office clients that have done that. Personally, I never did that when, when I had my corporate career. I would travel a lot, um, mo- mainly in the, in the US, but t- I would actually go to Mexico a lot. Were you married at the time or did you have kids um, when you lived in London? Uh, no, I was totally single at that point in time. And much easier I, way to do it. I would assume it's certainly easier. <laughs> yeah. I I've known people because I've in that corporate environment, I've known others who have taken families overseas and have had great experiences doing that. Uh, but I can imagine that, you know, certainly having been married now for over 12 years and having two kids, that that's much more complicated than just going as a single guy who's, who only has to, to worry about making himself happy for the, you know, whereas the whole family, trying to keep them happy in a, in a different culture and so forth. So, yeah, I, um, like I was mentioning before we, we hit the record button, I've, I've now lived now, I think this is the week we've lived in our current house for about 10 years. And when I was in my corporate career journey, if you will, I had moved like 10 or 11 times over like a 12, 13 year period, lived in five different States. And now this is the longest I've ever lived in one spot, my entire adult life. And I could never imagine relocating with four kids right now. Absolutely. It's interesting because as I was, I haven't done the exact math, but since I graduated, I don't think I've lived at the same actual address, although I lived in Houston, which is huge, right. but I haven't lived at the same address probably for more than about three years at a time, I would guess. And my parents, on the other hand, they lived in the same house for about 40 years, right? Uh, from about the time I was born till about, you know, I guess I was about 40 when they finally moved out and moved to something different, but it's just very different, very different than, than the way my parents did things. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same. I, my parents still live in the exact same house I grew up in. So one of the, the interesting things about this podcast, this show, if you will, is even though I'm a you know, financial planner, I run my own family office, really the, the heart of the, how the show has turned out has not been financial related at all. It's been about stories and really life transitions and mindset and reframing. And so I was introduced to you uh, by Melody Wilding, who I'll, I'll link to our conversation um, to that in our, in our show notes. Um, and when I'm looking at your background and, and going through what you've done, you've got a <laughs> a ton of life transitions. And that's why I was so excited about having you on is to, is to talk about this because a lot of people that I know that I work with professionally and personally at Tama, outside of Tama, um, you know, I know a lot of people are struggling with careers even before COVID and now certainly now during COVID, I guess. And you took action. You, you, you literally moved from your corporate world into owning um, your own consulting coaching business. So talk to us about what exactly do you do? And then let's get into the, the, the details of what that life transition was like. Yeah. So to summarize what I do is that I focus on working with parents who, have, who are running growing businesses 
And what I do with them is I help them develop a personalized executive workflow, which essentially means a system and process for managing all the details of their life and their work. And the reason we do this is because that's the system and the process that helps them, on the one hand, spend more time with their family uh, while also continuing to focus and grow their business. Or, you know, whether or not they're the owner or maybe the, the chief, you know, the, one of the key executives. But if they're in that situation where they have a, a serious business that they're in, in charge of and they also have a family, that's a lot to juggle. And if you don't have a great system for managing all those different things in your life, it's very difficult to do that without stress, without potential burnout and so forth. Well, I'm probably your, your number one candidate for that, knowing, it, knowing my situation with four kids, a business, and, and my wife, Teresa, that, that uh, has a very demanding corporate career herself. So how did you... So let me unpack that. Well, let me first start with, how did you end up starting and focusing on working parents? So I would say that what you find with a lot of people is when they start a business, they have a general idea of what they want to do. And as they go through, you know, year by year, they sort of, sometimes they get a clearer picture of who specifically they want to be focused on working with. And so it's more been in the last, I would say, six to 12 months that I've really tried to think about, okay, what, who are the people that I've done maybe my best work with or my most impactful work with, and what do they have in common? And one of the things I found is that sort of by accident, I seem to work with quite a few people who have five or more children. And so, and so that, and, and I do have my personal, I don't have five children. I have two, but I do have a high value for family. And so I really, you only need three up. more though. And then you'll hit five. <laughs> right. And so because I have a high value for family personally, I love being in that position to be able to help someone who has that family plus the other outside pressures find a way to manage that all in a way that they get what they more of what they want and less of the stress and the mess they don't want, right? And so that's kind of where I've narrowed down over really over time. I didn't start out thinking I'm going to work with working parents, uh, but that's sort of where I more ended up focusing on because I, I love being able to help people both not just do better at business and career, but also do better with family. So talk to us about, so if we go back, how did you end up choosing to leave your corporate career and launch, you know, this consulting coaching business? What was the, what was the turning point or tipping point then? Well, let me, let me step back a little bit further to put a little context around it. So when I was in corporate, um, you know, like a lot of people, I had a lot of pretty good amount of energy for my job, but I wasn't necessarily like awesome at being organized. And so what I found was that there were times when I was a young professional that things kind of slipped through the cracks and occasionally somebody would notice and that would be an unpleasant experience. Can you imagine, right? Yes, and very so, much so. And, and I, I gotta say, I don't think it happens super often, but even if it happens a few times, you know, that's, that is, that's a, that can be a very, um, as an unpleasant and maybe even jarring experience. And so what I figured out finally was that staying on top of your work is not just about trying harder. 
Because a lot of people, I think they they mainly think, oh, if I just need to try harder to be quote quote be organized and stay on top of things, and and I'll be fine, or I'll be and things will be better. But what I learned was that there's real sort of called technique to that, right? Just like in financial planning, you don't just sort of try harder to be financially responsible. You work, you know, you there's actual technique in terms of planning and so forth that that you don't just know because you've you've lived, you know. 30 years, right? Right. And so as I learned that there was technique about this, I said, oh, well, I better find a technique, a process, a system that will actually help me do this. And when I found something that worked, I started really getting into it and studying it. And it helped me a lot in terms of just being a professional who was not just um, good at my job in the sense of you know knowing that my expertise, but also being someone who was always on top of things and you know, never sort of let things fall off the cracks or, or sort of get left things undone that they, you know, are behind schedule or whatever. Does that make sense? It does. So let me zero in on what were those initial techniques that, that you found? Because, you know, when, when I think of, of, I guess, time management or productivity today, you know, I think of like Stephen Covey or James Clear, um, you know, Atomic Habits or, um, uh, the other book, The Power of Habits, like those those kind of tools and resources is, so what was it that, that you found initially in your corporate career that helped propel you there? So what, so for me, what, what worked really well is that I came across um, David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. And I found that that approach was incredibly helpful for me in terms of turning my own life into a much more systematically and well-managed life, including my career. And so I've spent the better part of, I guess, probably now 14 years really studying and practicing that particular framework. And can you give us an idea of like what that, if no one's ever heard of David Allen, um, you know, what that framework is? Uh, sure. So the, some of the key things about that framework are, are, are breaking down the, the idea of being organized into let's call it five key steps. Um, The first step is capturing everything that has your attention. And that essentially, in in a lot of cases, looks like writing stuff down instead of trying to remember it. And so if you find that you're the person who thinks they can just remember everything, uh, you can benefit a lot from, from switching over to finding, whether it's writing it on paper or putting it into an app, just putting stuff someplace outside your brain to be managed. So taking, basically taking notes. Taking notes and sort of, we'll call it externalizing those okay. things rather than trying to internally manage them. Okay. okay. Makes a huge difference. The second piece then is clarifying what those different things mean, because you can have a thought about something you need to do, but you may not have a clear picture of, what the specific action step is or what the action, what the final outcome is you're trying to achieve. And so if you create extreme clarity around what's the next step that moves that towards finished and what finished really means, then it's much, you're, you're set up for much more success in terms of actually making that happen. Okay. So this is what, this is like the critical thinking that requires that, People, the good, the thing is that people do this thinking. They just don't necessarily do it really systematically and proactively and consistently. Okay. You're always deciding what to do next about things, 
but you're not necessarily deciding it very proactively and systematically. So, so, so taking notes, clarity, and then what's three? So three is organizing, which means, okay, so you've done this great thinking about, okay, here's what I need to do next. Here's where I'm trying to go with this, what the outcome is. Now, once you do that thinking, you need to put it somewhere so you can find it again. And so you have to have some kind of hopefully relatively simple organizing structure where you put that and it could be in a notebook, it could be in an app again, but you have to have some way to organize it so that you can easily find what you need when you need to see it. Sounds like radical common sense, and it is kind of radical common sense, but it's a distinctively different step than the clarifying and the capturing. Correct. So, and I can, I can see where you're going. So we, we'll get to four and five, but I, at least from my vantage point, you're building this system or this process. And I don't think many people, especially parents, you know, they, they may deal with systems or processes in their, in their career, in their corporate job, if you will, but they don't necessarily translate that to helping them run their household. So Absolutely. I put a pen in that one and we're going to definitely come back to that. Absolutely. And so then the fourth step is what we call reflecting or maybe reviewing. And so once you've captured things and clarified what they mean and what you need to do, and then you've organized it into some system then you need to come back and look at that. You need to look at your, you make a to-do list, you need to go back and look at it. Sounds again, radical common sense. Also, you make a to-do list, you need to revise it, update it, keep it fresh so that it's useful. That's, that's in a very much small nutshell, that's what that means is you need to, you know, come back and, and refresh and rethink what you've been, what you've already done so that you can use that information to make decisions about what to do now, right? Right. And then number five, last one. Number five is when you engage with your work. And so that's the actual doing part. And so the the end conclusion of capturing those things that have your attention and then clarifying them and then organizing them and then reviewing and reflecting on them is that you should be very confident that when you come to 10 o'clock on Thursday morning, you actually have a great confidence that you know what's the right thing to be doing right now. So when you take, so to come back to the point, when you take these five steps, whether you realize it or not, you're building your own internal process or system. Yeah. Those five steps come together as a, as an internal, as your personal process. Um, as I say, I call it, you know, a personalized executive workflow for yourself because some people they manage in your, in your corporate world, you may manage different processes that do different things in the business, but you may not have a good process for your whole, for you. How do you manage yourself as a person who has professional responsibilities, personal responsibilities, and so forth? So this was something that, that you seem to find yourself struggling with within your corporate career and took the initiative to do something about it. So what was that? One of the topics I tend to talk about a lot is especially whether it's working with families, you know, at Tama or, you know, guests I've interviewed here at the show, on the show is just taking that first step, like knowing what the first minimal viable mm-hmm. yeah, step yeah. that you can take is. So what was that step for you? So I think for me, the step was once I recognized that there was something worth trying was to get you know, get the book and actually like 
follow the instructions in the book because the book is a large chunk of the book is essentially a step-by-step how-to guide. It's, it's not hypothetical at all. It's like extremely concrete. And so this, and this is more than one tiny step, but it was really, you know, take, take, take a book in this case, a book that has a very systematic step-by-step guide and actually follow it and see what happens. Right. Yes. So did you find, did you find it initially beneficial for what you were working on within your career or outside of your career, like in your home life, if you will, or, or for, or both, or you, or maybe didn't think about it and you're using it in your home life. So I definitely applied it both. Um, I, I, it's been a long time now since I started. And so I couldn't tell you the exact story about that, but I'm sure that it helped with both. I, I think it was maybe more noticeable um, at the office first, just because that's where the flurry of activity is. That's maybe the most difficult to manage, but I feel confident that it was really helpful for both. Absolutely. So let me, let, let's put a pause in, in there and go back to how did you make the decision to leave your corporate job and start your own business doing this? Like how did, what's the story behind that? Like how did, how did that life transition come apart or come about? I should say. Sure. Uh, let me, I'll, I'll back up just a little bit to give a little bit of context for that. And so, as I said, I tried this, it worked really well for me. And so I felt like it really, in some sense, up-leveled my own career. And I'm the sort of person that when I find something that works really well, I want to tell a few other people about it, maybe more than a few, you know, whether it's a great piece of software or a great toaster, I want to let some people know, you know, if I'm having to talk and I'm talking to you, talk to other, whoever. And so what I did with that is I noticed that there are people around me because I've worked on teams and so forth in corporate finance that probably could use some help. Uh, you probably notice the same thing with financial type issues, right? <laughs> yes, very much so. And so what I did is that, you know, it certainly wasn't my job to help other people in my teams and so forth become more productive, but I could do like a lunch and learn. I could do small bits of informal coaching. And what I found was that even in small doses, I could have a positive impact on people in that corporate environment. And so what I had sort of figured out was that I would probably just be a corporate finance guy who on the side helped helped his team and, and others in the organization with their productivity on the side. That was, that was kind of my plan, continue being corporate finance and, and then, but just sort of do a little of this on the side and that'd be kind of fun. Well, as you know, plans don't always work out the way you expect. And so no, they don't. <laughs> Mine was and, called triplets. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And so the big pivot point in my plan was that I got married. And so when I got married, my wife was a PhD student at the University of Texas in Austin, and I was working in Houston. Now that is approximately 150 miles difference, about two and a half hours of driving. And so the plan was that she would finish her coursework, which is she only had like one semester left of coursework when we got married. So she's going to finish her coursework and then she moved to Houston and she was going to be in Houston doing her research work and go to Austin occasionally. And then I would keep doing my corporate work, you know, 
Sounds like a great arrangement, right? Yeah, it sounds like no issues. <laughs> no issues, right? Well, fast forward five years, right? Five years later and two children later, we realized that she had made no progress on her PhD. <laughs> oh, no. Maybe even we'll call it negative progress <laughs> on her PhD. <laughs> okay. And this was not a good situation. Okay. And so we had a very important conversation about that. And we came up with two potential options. One was that she would stop being a PhD student. <laughs> the other one is that we would move to Austin and she would finish her PhD. <laughs> and so we decided to move to Austin and have her finish her PhD. And when we did that, um, what I just, the way we decided to enable that, so to speak, is that I um, requested to go part-time status in my corporate job. And so that arrangement essentially had me in the office in Houston about two and a half days a week. So I would drive to Houston on Tuesday morning, and then I would drive back on Thursday night. And that would put me in the office for about 20 hours that week. And I would probably, and I ended up doing some remote work from, from home as well, although that was not, I couldn't work 40 hours in that arrangement that wasn't going to work, but I could work some. And so, so that seemed like it was probably going to work pretty well. But when we did this, we did have two kids. And so our kids are four years old and 18 months old. And they're young, they're young, they're young. Yeah. And so it turned out that this was not like the most sustainable arrangement. Now we were hoping that we could do it for about a year, maybe a year and a half. And then we would move back to Houston she would have a PhD. I would still have a job. Everything would be great. But we found that this was not really as easy as maybe we thought it would be. And, and, and also an interesting opportunity arose, which is that about, I would say about four or five months into this process, uh, I had an opportunity to volunteer to be laid off. An opportunity to be laid off. <laughs> Yes, an opportunity to volunteer to be laid off. Okay. So this works different in different companies, but the way this worked was essentially you could tell them that you would like to be laid off and they would consider that in their process for deciding who to be laid, who would be laid off. They wouldn't guarantee that you would get laid off. Right. But, but they would take that into as a significant consideration. And so that was another very important conversation. And what we decided is that we kind of liked living in Austin. Now, admittedly, we didn't live, quote, in Austin. We lived in a suburb called Pflugerville, which is a nice place, um, but it's a little different than living in Austin. Um, but we liked living there. And so we thought, oh, you know what? We'll just try staying here. I'll, you know, let go of my job and we'll just kind of see what happens from there, right? And so at that point, I didn't actually know exactly what I was going to do next. But I kind of figured, I started figuring out that I had about two, I felt like I had two obvious options. One was go find another job in a big corporate finance organization, because Austin's a pretty big town, probably could find something like that. But that would be, that would be starting over after spending 16 years in one company. That's a, that's a big, that's a big, a big change. change. A big change. Or I could do something completely different. 
And honestly, I just had more enthusiasm for doing something completely different. In this case, taking these skills that I had developed over at that point, probably nine years of study and practice, roughly, uh, to use those skills instead as a essentially a self-employed consultant and and sort of go that direction. So how did so in those nine years you're you're doing this on the on on the side, if you will, like having these like mentioned lunch and learns or small, small groups, like where where are these people like within your company or have you started like branching out and working with people like outside your company? Because it sounds like you wanted to get the word out that, Hey, look, there's things out there that can help you. And, you know, I can probably help facilitate that. Great question. So it was definitely not what you call a side hustle. It was more like a small side component of my corporate job. Okay. Now, I think I had maybe tried to help one person sort of outside of corporate. And I think I, it, it went okay. I didn't, I learned a lot from the process. I, it was it maybe not an ideal situation, uh, but, but in general, I had, I had just done it sort of as a small side component of my corporate job. Um, and so it wasn't like I had a side hustle business that I was going to turn to a full-time business. I had an idea for a business uh, that, that I felt was more interesting and exciting than going into a completely new corporate finance organization. So when you, when you decide to, to do this, like how, how did you launch it? Like, how did you, how did you get the, the, the word out that, Hey, this is, this is what I'm doing now. Uh, I would say I launched it slowly. <laughs> and essentially what I did is I started by just having conversations with people. So different people I already knew because we, we, my wife had lived in Austin for a good 10 years previous to when we moved there. Um, and I also just happened to have a few other people that I had known in other places that happened to be in Austin. So it was partially just going and talking to people that I already knew and just sort of let, telling them about what I was doing. And, you know, that ended up having leading to one or two client, you know, either somebody wanted to do the work or somebody knew somebody who might be interested in doing that, that work. Um, I did, I started doing uh, networking essentially. So chamber meetings and other think, groups like that. And so that's, you know, it was just sort of very, I would say sort of a slow ramp up to trying to figure out how to make that work. And, you know, honestly, it's, it's pretty slow, but it, you know, it, it sort of eventually sort of got someone off the ground. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, as we are both in, in the world of finance and I talk to people about this all the time, it's, again, taking that first step and then letting the power of positive compounding take over for you rather than, mm-hmm. you know, negative compounding, if you will. Sure. Um, so if, if we can, if we pivot back to what we were talking about before David Allen's book and getting things done and you, you broke out these five key steps that kind of develops into this system, how did it, how did it grow or gravitate into working with working families or, you know, parents of that, that were entrepreneurs or just had multiple kids? So I'd say um, mostly it came from the idea that as most of my business comes in from referral. And so in some sense, it was a bit um, accidental that I happened to start working with a number of different people who had this, you know, large family situation. 
But as I say over the last you know six, 12 months, I've been thinking more about how do I focus down my, my, my um, niche, so to speak, in this consulting and coaching, then that sort of came to the top as some of the people that number one are could be really interested and motivated to make a change as well as people that I would enjoy working with. Cause I have definitely enjoyed working with people in that situation. So when you, when you, when I think about, you know, what a, a system or a process is like, how do you initially help a family begin to develop that? Like, how does that, how does that start? So, so the way I work, it's focused on an individual, typically, I, I guess, almost exclusively, I would say. So it's, so it's one person. How does that person going to rework how they manage their life, essentially? And so the process that I use, or maybe the best way to put it, that the way I go about that is with, with highly focused hands-on implementation. And so, especially pre-COVID, uh, I would essentially show up at a client's office and we would spend two full days rebuilding the process for how they manage their work, their life and everything else. Does that answer your question? And and so when, when you're rebuilding, so this is, you know, how they run their calendar, how they operate email, how they integrate kids' schedule, you know, projects at, at, at work, projects at home? Exactly. We're, we're trying to pull together everything going on in their life because essentially you have one life and so you need one system to manage it. And so we're going to re-engineer both the way you think about it in terms of some of those key questions you have to ask about everything as well as some of the structures you use to manage that information so that it works better for you. Does that, does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So obviously you're starting out with your one individual, but then, you know, in a family setting, you know, somebody's married or has a partner, how does, how does that dynamic, when does that other person get involved and, and how does that dynamic work? So or does it? it depends. It depends. Honestly, I've had a couple of, I, I would say I can think of a couple different examples. Um, one example is that the spouse essentially just enjoys the fact that their, their spouse is much more on top of things. They're pleasantly surprised that they don't have to remind them to do a bunch of things that they used to always have to remind them to do. And then, you know, and the family functions better, um, but they don't necessarily make any changes on their own. Okay. Another way that it can happen, I can I think of one client in particular, is that they also latch onto this idea uh, of this framework and they maybe get the book and they sort of work on it on their own, but they, but they see the value of it in their spouse. And, and so maybe they go um, do that work on their own and sort of take those ideas and, and, and follow, follow them through to sort of building better systems for themselves. I don't think I have an example where I've actually sort of worked directly with a spouse of, from a client yet. Uh, would be really interested in doing that, but it just hasn't quite worked out that way. Okay. So when you're, when you're looking at building these, these systems and processes for, you know, individual family, what would be like one of the one or two biggest, um, 
trying to think of the right word I want to sab- sabotage sabotageurs, if you will, like what are, what are the one or two things that let that really trip people up and prevent them from either letting go or, or the ability to, to move forward? So are you asking what trips people up once they've started down this process or in general, before they even start, what are they struggling with before they even start trying to make a big change? Well, I, so that's two great questions in one. So one would be like before they start and then after they start. Okay. So one of the main things people struggle with before they start is that I'll sort of break into a couple of things. One is there's some people who they just try to manage everything in their mind. They try to remember most of the stuff they need to do. And they maybe write down the, the five most important things they're working on or the 10 most important things they need to do today. But they, but they leave the bulk of it in their brain. And that creates all kinds of problems because your brain is really not meant to do that. <laughs> it's not designed to do that. And so, and so that doesn't work out well. The second thing that people struggle with is that they essentially have to-do lists that are not clear and they're not complete. So, one, so the to-do list will have vague ideas on it. For example, dry cleaning, <laughs> rather than a very specific action like take the suit, take my suit to the dry cleaners. Like on a specific day, like so, or not, it doesn't even necessarily be a specific day, but it's a specific, very specific task. Okay, and so it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be a specific day, but it, it at least needs to be more specific than just the idea. Oh, dry cleaning. What does that mean, right? That's a that's a thought that needs more thinking before you can do any action on it. Uh, or you know, kid's birthday party. That's a thought that needs a lot more thinking before you can actually take action. Okay, so what people find, what I find is that a lot of people, their to-do list has a fair number of fair, fairly good proportion of vague ideas rather than super concrete actions. Okay. Okay. And the other thing about it is it's typically not complete. It may be the most, the 10 most important, the 20 most important, the 30 things they thought of yes, yesterday, but it's very unlikely to be essentially a complete picture of all the things they might possibly need to do today or and then on to on into the next you know week or whatever. So, so then what are what are the some of the you know one or two things that when when somebody does start down this path that can turn into to roadblocks? So and one of the roadblocks is is time in terms of they're not used to spending time on this particular process. Now, I like to frame that as this process is a process that creates more time on the back end, right? And it's also a process that incorporates a lot of things that you were doing already, but just incorporates them a little differently. And so, and so for the most part, it's either not, it's not that much extra work, but it's sort of reshaping when you're doing that work. And it's also, in some cases, work that really, really needed to be done before that you just weren't doing. It was causing you lots of problems, <laughs> but it is, but it's a new thing to do. So, right. You have to look at it as a, as a 
return on investment. Like, exactly. You know? it, there's a major, it's a significant investment, not just in the initial implementation, but also over time as you maintain that. So do you find, cause it's, you talk about like motivation or willpower and you, that's a whole nother conversation. We'll, we'll save for another time. But when are people willing to take, do you find that people are willing to take the action that they need to in order to get that return on investment? Or if they don't, how do you help them get them over that hump? Like this will be beneficial for you long-term. Just don't look at it as the here and now. Right. So, so I would say most of the people I work with, they do take that action immediately. And one of the reasons why it, it sort of works is because we do the intensive implementation. And so after two days of implementation, they have something to work with immediately. And so let's say day one and two, you're doing the implementation. Day three, you have a different experience. And so because you get to that improved experience so fast, a lot of people, that's enough to keep to keep them going. It doesn't mean they go keep going perfectly. And that's what ongoing support is for, to help them continue to improve, but they get enough significant improvement immediately that that puts them on a road where they're not going to just quit, generally speaking. Okay. One of the things that I found interesting on your um, website was this free guide that you offer dealing with email. (laughs) And for somebody that struggled with email for a a long time, can can you walk us through some of the the things that, that, that you point out with, with this guide that, to help people deal with email? Yeah. So the guide is specifically about keyboard shortcuts for email. And the reason, and that's a very, very specific topic, right? Yeah. I've actually, I've never heard something specific regarding email tying it back to keystrokes. <laughs> and so the, the reason that I've, I've got that guide out there is because it's a very quick win in the sense that if you can train yourself to use a few keyboard shortcuts, what you'll find is you can get through your email a lot faster. The, the research that I've heard says that when you go from your keyboard to your mouse, you slow down by about a factor of three. And so you start creating, instead of doing these mouse clicks, you're doing these keyboard shortcuts, suddenly you get through your email faster and that makes it easier for to clear out your email, right? Right. And so the guide is simply a, comp- a compilation of the, I think it's maybe seven most important keyboard shortcuts that you need to be significantly more efficient on your email. Now that does not solve the whole email problem, of course, but I put it together because it's extremely focused little sort of quick win for being spending less time on email. Okay. So Chris, I know that, that I only have you for a finite period of time. So I want to get to my closing question that I, that I ask all of my guests and knowing that you have two, uh, two kids of your own, what is the best thing about being a parent? That is such a great and interesting question. <laughs> so I was thinking about that since you sent me the question in advance and it's, it's, it's a little hard to, to identify, you know, specifically what is the best thing about being a parent because they're so, it's such a multifaceted experience, right? But I would say one of the best things about being a parent is when you see your children 
my children are sixth grade and third grade. So two and they're about two and a half years apart. And so when I see them playing together, very, very focused and sort of collaboratively and immersed in what they're doing for a significant, you know, for maybe an hour at a time, it's like, I must've done something right. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll admit, I'll, I'll admit that I will credit my wife with being, you know, significantly better at the whole parenting process than I am. But I will say that I must've done something right. If my kids, uh, you know, two and a half years apart can, can play very, you know, enthusiastically together for over an hour um, doing, doing whatever it is they do. So, so that's, that's one of the things that I think is, um, it's one of the best things about parenting, being a parent. That, that is a, everybody answered the question in a very unique way, which is one of the reasons why I, 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 I don't want to, I'd like to give that question ahead, ahead of time so people can you know, really think about it because it is a pretty loaded question, but th- that's, a, that's an answer that I have yet to hear. And that's the, the reason why I love closing with that, this question is the uniqueness because everybody's different. Everybody's got a different story to tell about it. So, um, Chris, that was a, that, I think that's a fascinating way to, uh, to close our conversation. I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast, Chris. We'll make sure to link to that, that free guide and your website so people can learn more about you um, and uh, look forward to many more ca- conversations to come. Thanks a lot, Paul. It's been great to be here with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.